Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent S. And I'm C the Provocateur. And C, decloaking off the starboard bow, I think we might have some guests. That's right, we do. We have Matt and Liam beaming in from the Spotlight podcast. Good evening, gents. How are you doing? Hello. Hello, lads. Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, so, let's have a couple of quick introductions. Uh, Matt and Liam, who are you and what are you doing here? Do you want me to take this, Matt? <laughs> Go for it, Liam. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, we are two of the hosts of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast with a non-Trekky perspective. Uh, so, we started that back in 2016, uh, started our journey through the Star Trek universe, uh, kind of viewing it from our kind of outsider perspective, as none of us were massive, giant Star Trek fans uh, before we started the podcast, uh, weren't going to conventions or anything like that. Um, as we just discovered in our kind of pre-chat about finding out how you guys are far more qualified to talk Trek than us <laughs> as you actually went to the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. And yeah, so we've just been gradually working our way um, through all of Star Trek. It's been a fascinating uh, journey. We've kind of met people, have uh, been involved in the world of Trek along the way, and it's uh, yeah, been great fun. It's been super, hasn't it, mate? Because it's been, I mean, Star Trek is no small franchise. There's never a, any risk of us running out of content. And we kind of started 2016 right around the time that it all kind of kicked off again. Like Star Trek Beyond had just come out. Uh, Discovery was on the horizon. And then, you know, Picard and Lower Decks to follow. So we're in this new kind of age of Trek content anyway. Um, but it's been great to not be something like a... Um, like a recap show we're not going through every episode by episode so we've been able to tackle all the movies and then kind of dip in and out of the various tv shows initially kind of bringing us up to speed on the uh on everything from original series next gen deep space nine and so on uh, and then slowly bringing more guests to talk some of their favorites so it's kind of just a giant like like book club like a like a learning curve for people so if you're not a fan of trek or you don't know much about it you can join along with us we're learning as we go paul our, our third co-host is very much the the most qualified of the three of us as he was a bit of a closet trekkie anyway but um but you know we're, we're continuously learning and discovering more and we spread out into talking about films related to star trek where they feature either uh, alumni actors or directors um in the broader scope of things and other tv shows and interviews and all sorts of things really well i'm curious you know going into that project as people that aren't necessarily huge star trek fans what have been your some of your takeaways from the franchise i think i think for me it's working out that me and liam are strange fans of final frontier as we also said off off mic uh it's it's regarded as one of the worst movies but i think we have a real soft spot for it don't we liam yeah man like i fucking love final frontier it's great <laughs> like um i would, it's always that thing whenever someone goes on twitter i'll post your controversial star trek opinion i'm always straight in there with like final frontier mate it's quality like uh yeah i just don't i don't I don't get it, you know. It's uh, my my secret pain is people hating on Final Frontier. <laughs> well, I've I've got a shattering revelation for you both. Um, right now, as I sit here recording this, behind me, framed on the wall, is a Star Trek Five teaser poster. Incredible! Is it Hell, what, the yes. one with the seat on it? 
Yeah, it's the it's the theater seat with <laughs> buckles on it flying through space that says, why are they putting seatbelts in the theaters this summer? Star Trek V, <laughs> Final Frontier. That's why. I mean, it's, it's fucking hilarious as well, because I mean, as much as I love Final Frontier, it is not like what you'd call an exciting movie. It's not, you know, like... Uh, Die Hard 2, where they were like, oh, the last film blew you out the back of the theater. Like, you know, it's not, it's not that kind of movie, but I, but I really like it. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's super fun. Really like, uh, lots of great comedy in it and lots of great character moments for the main three trio of Kirk, Spock and Bones. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely has its fandom. It, I think every Star Trek con- piece of content that exists, at a certain point, someone looks at it and goes, wait a second, there's something more interesting there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I struggle to see how anyone would say that about Star Trek Nemesis, but I see I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> see, I would sooner rewatch Nemesis than Star Trek V. Oh, come off it, mate. Come on. What? Nemesis? Nemesis I, is our Nemesis. Li- li- <laughs> listen, 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 listen. I understand that it's got some great moments for the the triumvirate that the the the, the Spock and McCoy and Kirk that's that's some good stuff. But after that, it's nothing. I I genuinely want Cyborg to come and take my pain, <laughs> and my pain is that film from my memory. I want it erased. <laughs> oh man! But um, but you're here now, and we have to strip you of your names. You are now Agent M and Agent L. Uh. We've got some uh, sunglasses and black suits in the mail Hell to yeah. you. Should be there soon. Excellent, excellent. Um, oh, oh, they're Ray-Bans, not knockoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we spend money here, don't <laughs> worry. But um, in terms of the spy movie genre, what do you guys like? Uh, do you want to go first, Matt? Uh, yeah, sure. Like, um, like many people, I think, you know, I'm a huge Bond fan. It's one of those ones where... Uh, I'd only been seeing them in cinemas since World Is Not Enough onwards, um, but you know I've I've since gone back and watched them all, and I think I've just through catching a lot of them on TV first time around because they're on so bloody often, um, and that being such a big spy franchise uh, and staple really. But in recent years, it's really kind of the baton has been passed quite a lot to the Mission Impossible films. I uh, really love those, um, and so in terms of like the franchise, I think they really are the big ones. And then there's, you get like the odd little film here and there. I think one that comes to mind for me is something like Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers kind of like spy espionage comedy. Um, and spy comedies don't always work, as we may find out today. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there's a whole breadth of uh, of stuff you can do in this genre. And it's interesting to see the various filmmakers and, and stars take a stab at uh, various different things. Nice. What about you, Liam? Um, yeah, for me, I mean, like most people in Britain, um, it's it's Bond in sense of how I was first introduced to kind of spy movies growing up. Um, ITV on a bank holiday, you know, you'd get a Bond movie, and I think the ones I watched the most of growing up were the Roger Moore ones because I think I think they're the most kind of kid friendly. Um, and so when I was uh, you know growing up, I was a big fan of Snogamore. I thought he was thought he was great. <laughs> and um, but as time went on, uh, obviously I discovered other spy movies. Started seeing Bond movies at the cinema with Golden Eye. Uh, saw that in the uh, cinema, which was an amazing experience. I remember 
uh, in the opening pre-titles, the bit where he leaps onto the side of the plane. It got like a huge round of applause from the audience. But one of the few times I've seen that, like in the cinema, and I think it was because, like, you know, people like bond his back. Like, yeah, it was a big moment for people uh, to see him back in the cinemas. Um, I'm actually just looking at my official uh, Bond ranking on Letterboxd right now because I did a rewatch myself a couple of years ago of all the Bond movies. And what came out at number one for me was Casino Royale. And I do mean the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, not the one Woody Allen in it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's numero uno for me, I think. Literally, I mean, as a as a reboot, I mean, it is called Bond Begins. Essentially, it's, it's pretty much no perfect. Um, I think Daniel Craig in that film is absolutely amazing. You know, that's the one where clearly he was the most invested in the role, um, and it's just kind of so stripped down, but at the same time, as everything you love about Bond in it. Um, so yeah, Casino Royale is absolutely wicked. Um, other favorite spy movies, I would say The Conversation. Um, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, I'd say that counts as a kind of spy movie as it's kind of surveillance uh, based and everything like that. Uh, that is incredible. If you haven't seen The Conversation with Gene Hackman, I mean, that's a massive recommend. And I agree with... Definitely, yeah. yeah. Huge, huge. And I agree with uh, Matt about the Mission Impossible movies. I think, you know, as time's gone on, they kind of, yeah, almost taken the baton from Bond a bit. I mean, the last one, Mission Impossible Fallout, I mean, that's the best one of the series for me. And, I mean, that is just phenomenal in terms of kind of practical action and everything like that. Really, really incredible filmmaking. Uh, certainly a lot better than Spectre um, at the end of the day if we're kind of just putting the last two entries side by side. And I am a big fan of the Bourne movies as well, with Bourne Supremacy uh, being my being my favourite. It's kind of interesting that you think about the Mission Impossible films. We haven't touched them yet, but if you think about diminishing returns, it's almost like an inverse on in the Mission Impossible films. Um, oh, yeah. But we'll get back to diminishing returns later on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, li- we certainly will. <laughs> yeah, uh, Liam, now <laughs> you, you kind of hinted at it. I'm, I'm assuming that Daniel Craig is your Bond? Uh, well, you know what? My favourite Bond of all time is Timothy Dalton. Oh. Um, because uh, in terms of performance, uh, because at the end of the day, Living Daylights and Licence to Kill would both definitely be in my top ten Bond movies. Uh, so both these movies I really like. And for me, he never got... Although Casino Royale, I think, I think Casino Royale and Skyfall are probably the best Bond movies in terms of actual films. I think they're both pretty excellent. Um, however, with Dalton, I don't think he ever got a fair crack of the whip. But in terms of performance, um, I think that everything that Daniel Craig does, pretty much, Timothy Dalton did first in the 80s. And he's kind of cribbing off his performance in many ways. And that's not taking anything away from Daniel Craig, because I think he's incredible. Um, but I think kind of Dalton did it first, but he did it at a time where people were not ready for the brutal kind of bond. Uh, you know, when you get uh, Dalton turning all of the kind of one-liners into taking all the comedy out of them and making them savage, like, he got the boot, uh, all that kind of stuff. Like, that That at the time, people just couldn't handle it. Not straight after Roger Moore. Um, <laughs> but when Daniel Craig came along, post-born, everyone was into it. Um, so, yeah, Dalton is my favourite. Uh, Dalton is my favourite Bond, but uh, Casino Royale and Skyfall are my favourite Bond movies. <laughs> 
I'm curious, Matt, who is your Bond? Is it Brosnan? Because he's one of the first ones you saw in theaters there with World Is Not Enough. It's tricky. Like, Brosnan feels like my Bond. I think he is, my, you know, quote-unquote my Bond. But Daniel Craig probably is my favorite still. And that goes a lot of the way about the quality of the films. You know, Liam saying how Dalton performance versus movie. I think with Craig, performance is outstripping a lot of it. Because for me, Casino Royale is is the number one in my books. It is my favorite Bond film and the best of his era. And a lot of his other stuff don't always land. Like, Quantum of Solace is a bit of an odd duck. Skyfall, I think, uh, you can go either way, and I, I do like it a lot, but then Spectre really kind of let me down. So I'm hoping No Time to Die gives him a good rounded kind of one up, one down, one up, one down, go out on a high. Um, but I, it probably is Brosnan, you know, because um, I did a rewatch as well a couple years ago. I say a couple years ago now. I did it on the run up to No Time to Die, so I'd be finished in time for sort of April last year. Mate, that ha, would ha, be ha. a couple of years ago now. <laughs> yeah. No Time to Die. Well, yeah. Like I, I, about five years ago. Yeah, I started, you know, and towards the end, middle and end of 2019. Um, and yeah, certain ones of the Brosnan era went. Well, some stayed very low down in my estimations, but something like Tomorrow Never Dies really went up again. I remembered always liking it, and then I heard a lot of kind of bad, bad word about it. And then watching it again, I was like, you know what, this is a great follow-up to GoldenEye. I think it's got lots of great action in it. Michelle Yeoh is fantastic. Um, and yeah, I think that really kind of holds up. I mean, you've got the stuff like the kind of newspaper baron empire villain, which dates it slightly, but oh, I think he had a... Slightly? Well, you know, you know. <laughs> but he, he had a good run, but Brosnan, unfortunately, did kind of... That was a bit diminishing returns, especially by the end. But um, I think he's, he's, he's kind of a good midpoint, I think, between the rawness that Dalton introduced and going back to a bit of the charm of Moore. I think he's kind of like Moore and Dalton together, and then Craig comes out as this kind of new uh 21st century bond really by the time uh, casino royale comes along well it's nice to know you it's nice to know you join me on uh hashtag team brother yes <laughs> there, there are dozens uh, there are dozens well. great which which one's your favorite of his uh for me yeah uh i mean i it's hard not to go for goldeneye in terms of his films mm. uh, I, yeah. I i'm a big yeah. fan of yeah. tomorrow never dies uh we covered it that was the last Brosnan film we covered uh, and I, I found a lot of love for it. I think, as you say, Michelle Yeoh was fantastic. And mm-hmm. and what Bond tried to do was great. I just feel like it didn't do enough for him. There should have been more on the page for Bond because Goldeneye did a lot with setting up this new 90s Bond. It's post-Cold War. It's more serious. And then by you know Tomorrow Never Dies, he's quipping every 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I got to go with Goldeneye as well. It just feels like the one where they're not writing Bond the caricature. It feels like they're still trying to examine a character mm. there. So, but yeah, definitely spinning off of Bond uh, into into very different territories. Uh, Cam, what are we doing this week? We are going to tackle 2019's Men in Black reboot, Men in Black International. Well, this is the first time we've actually closed out a franchise. So you gents are joining us for quite a momentous occasion. So I'm looking forward to getting to the knock list at the end and sort of debating the men in blacks. But let's get the letterbox.com synopsis out of the way. Men in Black International. The universe is expanding. The men in black have always protected the earth from the scum of the universe. And in this new adventure, they tackle their biggest, most global threat to date, a mole. In the Men in Black organization. Okay, sure. A lot of that is patting yourself on the back for the previous films, yeah, but sure. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't do much for me, that one, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so before we get into how this film came to be, Cam, did you see this one at the cinema? I didn't see it in the cinema. I paid money to rent it. So I have now paid to watch Men in Black International twice in my life. Um, I really have a lot of life decisions <laughs> that I'm grappling with at this very moment. But um, yeah, I rented it on video. And I remember there was so much you know, fire and brimstone thrown at it when it was in theaters that I rented it thinking like, okay, you know, what am I going to be seeing? Every year I write my best and the worst of the year. I really thought, well, here's an obvious candidate possibly for the worst. And I watched it and was like, eh, this was something, barely a movie. Um, I like the stars. That was about my takeaway. And frankly, when I sat down to watch this movie last night, I remembered almost not a single thing from the first time around. Yeah, I think that might be something that carries through out of all this discussion about the film. But gentlemen, you're our guests. Uh, Liam, do you have any memory of this film? Uh, well, I mean, I'm barely holding on to memories of it from watching <laughs> it for the first time on Sunday night. So, you know, um, yeah, I've, uh, I mean, you know, I've seen all of the Men in Black films. Um, I saw the first one at the cinema, second one at the cinema as well. Um, the first one I actually rewatched specifically for this podcast um to remind myself because it's been a while since i've seen it still stands up really really well uh first one still still really really good blockbuster it's kind of nice and it's kind of nice and weird for a kind of mainstream kind of blockbuster the chalk and cheese dynamics between tommy lee jones and will smith are great and there's really uh really good uh practical special effects and stuff like that yeah it's it, it's really really good the sequels um, are not so great, um, but you know what? In comparison to this, can I come back? All is forgiven. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Um, yeah, big, big fan of the first one. I don't think I caught it in cinemas, but for some reason, because I was in secondary school from like 97 to 2002, and it was one of, you know, you always have those memories of the films that just got put on the TV in classroom. This was always one of them, and I never knew why, but this that's my main memory of this first film. Aside from all the the hubbub around the uh, the music video for Will Smith's song, which was on TV all the time, and was actually the very first cassette single I ever bought. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just remember this film always being on the TV at school. And yeah, I'd seen two and three again neither in the cinema actually i don't think um i've got vague memories of those now um but I, I seem to remember three picking up a bit of two slack quite well with some interesting uh choices and at least you know smith and lee jones being back still um but yeah the first one again i like liam i also rewatched it recently and it really is a perfect example of like a real well-written tight little blockbuster like when the credits hit you're 87 minutes in it's kind of you know, considering Men in Black International is only about 20 minutes longer when you cut out the credits, it's insane how short the first one feels and how long this one feels. Um, but this one, yeah, I never caught this one at the cinema either because I did hear the big wave of bad press. And I finished watching it about 25 minutes ago and it's already slipping away. So... <laughs> we've, uh, we've all been neuralizing ourselves in the mirrors, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I... I us. Well, I mean, it was interesting about the bad press. I'm sure Cam's got some information about that. I hope he does, because I all, that's all I remember. I didn't see it at the cinema either. I just remember hearing bad reviews and just thinking, why do we need a reboot? 
Yeah, well, um, <laughs> uh, so for the uh, behind the scenes on this one, I'm going to take a lot of it from an article on The Hollywood Reporter that came out very shortly after the release of the film. And the article is entitled, Rewrites, Infighting, and No Urgency Behind Sony's Lackluster Men in Black Relaunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. So that article comes out like maybe a week after the movie does. So like that kind of tells you the atmosphere surrounding this one at the time. Um, But that's not the way it really began. During the press tour for Men in Black 3, there was a lot of talk between Barry Sonnenfeld, the previous director, as well as Smith and Jones about how they'd like to do a fourth one. And the third one was very successful. It was like, you know, worldwide box office, the most successful of any of the Men in Blacks. So it wasn't insane that you could get a part four, but Sony turned to a writer named Oren Uziel to develop an idea for Men in Black 4. Um, They were kicking around the idea of another, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, Men in Black film, but they just decided it was way too expensive and there was no future to that franchise. Tommy Lee Jones is obviously getting older. Do we want to hang on to this or do we want to build this franchise so it can keep going another 20 years? So they... Ultimately decided, um, Oren Uziel had a writing credit on a little movie called 22 Jump Street. And they decided to develop a Men in Black 21 Jump Street crossover project that would have been directed by James Bobbin, who'd done the Muppets films, as well as I think he did, um, I think he was on Flight of the Concords as well. And so uh, that was sort of the idea. And I'm just curious from you guys, does the idea of a Men in Black 21 Jump Street crossover film sound appealing? Yes. More than this, yeah, yeah. In terms of, uh, <laughs> I, I knew about MIB Twenty Three, as it was provisionally called, um, and yeah, when I was watching this film, I was like, that project sounded weird as fuck. But you know what? Twenty One Jump Street and Twenty Two Jump Street are both successful, very funny films. Um, so you know, uh, they in terms of pedigree. We've got a lot more chance for that to work and be in some way amusing than than this. I would have totally gone for that over this. It's kind of wild, isn't it? Because it felt like Sony kind of going, you know, we need more hits. What do we own? Let's kind of crush these together. Because, I, yeah, I didn't know how that came about, even though I had heard of it. And I was thinking, like, this is going to be a really weird crossover if this happens because they're two franchises that have no reason to to mix other than presumably they're both owned by sony and share writers and stuff well um do you remember the end credits of 22 jump street the, which is the best part of the film mm-hmm. where in the oh, end all the other versions of sequels yeah they, they do like 20 different potential sequels and stuff <laughs> and i was so it could have just been one that, of them i guess Exactly. When I was watching that, I thought that almost felt like they were teeing up the idea of doing something as mad as a Men in Black crossover, you know, because when that they would do all kinds of ver- different versions of kind of Jump Street. And I was like, oh, it seems like a natural thing to make you accept that they could do this crazy crossover from that. That's where the the idea came from, I thought, because I remember seeing 22 Jump Street and it, it, there is a slide in those end credits that has... Um, you know, uh, Jump Street 23 or whatever it is, and the four of them on screen, so Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith, and the two stars. And that's uh, where I thought the idea came from. It is actually uh, one of the ideas. Right, right. I, I, I couldn't imagine if I imagined that or not, whether that was actually in there. And they have said in the in the year since that they've saved the title MIB 23 if they ever want to do it. I don't think it'll happen at this <laughs> point. But um, 
the reason it didn't happen, uh, the fingers seemed to get pointed at uh, Jump Street producer Neil Moritz, who just couldn't work out a financial deal for the project. And so they ended up kind of just, the whole thing just kind of fell apart. And they decided, okay, we need to reboot this instead. So they turned to writers Matt Holloway and Art Markham. They are responsible for writing the original Iron Man. Although that's a project that everyone involved with always says there was no script for that movie really when they were shooting it. So <laughs> I always find that fascinating how often I see from the writers of Iron Man on projects when it's like, eh, really? Really? Because they also had um, uh, heavy hands in Punisher Warzone and Transformers The Last Night. Yeah, I mean, Transformers so... Last Night is, is an absolute fucking turd of a film. And, like, when I when I saw that was their last credit prior to this, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because these are both, like, such fucking turkeys. I mean, with Iron Man, it's one of those movies that you never fucking know with kind of massive blockbusters in terms of so many screenwriters usually get their hands in the script at some point or another. It, just because they've got credit, you never really know how much they did for the film. Like you say, like Favreau and all that, they always say that there's tons and tons of improv on the Iron Man movies and stuff like that, so you, you just don't know. Yeah, and um, so they ended up deciding they were going to go with the, their script. They apparently, the studio was very high on their screenplay initially. They said it was quite edgy and more timely. I think a lot of that just got watered down because what happened was um, director F. Gary Gray joins. Um, he's done movies like Friday, Italian Jobs, Straight Outta Compton, Fate of the Furious. Um, he comes on board and it's kind of funny because he previously did the sequel to Get Shorty, which was a Barry Sonnenfeld film. And now here he is doing Men in Black 4, a sequel to Barry Sonnenfeld's franchise. Mm. But uh, he comes on board, and it seems like pretty early on, there was a real clash between F. Gary Gray and producer uh, Walter Parks. Now, Walter Parks is also a writer in his own right. He wrote the movie War Games as well as Sneakers. Um, that's a stay tuned for this podcast in the future. But these two, it just seems, did not get along. But they brought in um, Hemsworth and Thompson because they wanted to you know, uh, utilize that chemistry that was created in Thor Ragnarok. That was entirely the plan was to take that winning combination and make it work here. But it seems like in terms of the production, it was just very messy in terms of behind the scenes. They said um, there was 17 weeks of prep time with the green light. And so there was just constant rewriting on set constantly. And um, F. Gary Gray changed the initial villain concept. It was supposed to be four villains, kind of like a band, like the Beatles. The combined into one that was turned into the twins. F. Gary Gray came up with the idea of hiring the Lace Twins um, pair as the villains. Oh, it was and, them. Um, was, yeah, it I was. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah, they're like French hip hop dancers for for those that don't know. But um, it seems like this was just one of those blockbusters where they were just writing endlessly. And Walter Parks, the producer, had a heavy hand in overseeing the rewrites which I don't think necessarily went well with what F. Gary Gray wanted to do. And apparently he tried to exit the production several times during production. Uh, they say that Walter Parks stepped in as director a few times. Uh, so it sounds a little awkward, a little awkward. Um, um, uh, Chris Hemsworth and T uh, Tessa Thompson also hired their own dialogue writers to come onto the project to write their dialogue. <laughs> So it was like a lot of writers. It seems like the original writers were actually on set throughout the process, but nonetheless, a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes. 
Um, the one, I guess, uh, thing I'll say is that apparently the post-production was pretty smooth. There was no major reshoots. So everything they shot pretty much just they were happy with, I guess. Um, the, studio, the studio tested two cuts of the movie, one by F. Gary Gray and one by Walter Parks. Walter Parks' version was the one chosen. But there was a Sony source who said of this time that Sony was an absentee landlord. They were nowhere to be found. <laughs> like this thing was just spiraling while, you know, the people behind the behind the project were like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you say Parks wrote Sneakers. Yeah. I mean, Sneakers is a wicked film. Yeah, yeah. Like, he has credentials. It's not a case of someone with no talent or no storytelling ability, you know, interfering here. Mm. And when both versions, it sounds like both were shown to test audiences, his was the one that yeah. went with. I mean, you know, the, the film that they came out with was bad, but it's like, does that mean that F. Gary Gray's version was worse <laughs> than this? Uh, maybe maybe i guess we'll never know <laughs> release the gary cut <laughs> i don't think this is going to pick up the same hype as a side cut unfortunately no i think it depends on who you screen it to a lot of the time as well because if it's like a bunch of kids maybe they prefer this version i don't know i i, I wasn't a big fan of that but we'll get into that in a bit but it does really feel like too many cooks at this stage yeah that seems to be the case yeah, it's kind of mm, it's kind of, definitely yeah. it's kind of nuts about the whole di- separate dialogue writer thing as well, and it makes sense because a lot of it feels like kind of loose improv. And if it was essentially like basically improv, but it's been written down five minutes beforehand from different sources, then that also doesn't help everything gel. I think I think we'll get into you know the characterization here. It's kind of all over the shop, and towards the back end, it kind of throws most of it out the window to get things get things going along. And I think that yeah, that tidbit about the dialogue stuff really does give a bit of a clue as to where these characters were and how uh, important they were to the rest of the film. So just in terms of the box office, the movie cost $110 million, which actually isn't that extravagant, so they were kind of hedging their bets a little bit. Domestically, though, it made $80 million. <laughs> So, And international, $173 for a worldwide total of $253 million. So, like, people probably didn't lose their jobs, but no one was happy with this number, especially in comparison. So... Again, two hundred fifty-three million, whereas the first one did five eighty-nine, the second one did four hundred forty-five, and the third one did six hundred twenty-four. So this is not progress, people. <laughs> did MIB three cost more than this? Yeah, it did. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would have thought it with the card Will Smith paycheck on there. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's not a terrible number, is it? It cleaned its face. Even with marketing kind of thrown in, but yeah, you're not gonna instantly green light Men in Black International Two off the back of that, are you? No, and it landed at number thirty-four at the worldwide charts between Jordan Peele's Us, which was fantastic, and it's interesting. It landed one spot above Dark Phoenix, which was another very expensive, too many cooks in the kitchen blockbuster that kind of ended a franchise. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, he, Dark Phoenix is also pretty terrible. Uh, it is. But I I think I got more out of it than I did this. God, right. And the top three for this year: number one was Avengers Endgame, number two was The Lion King, number three was Frozen Two. All hail Disney, our lords and masters. <laughs> I do remember 2019 yeah. being a pretty rough year for kind of franchise stuff on the basis of the you know some of the films you know on the basis of this and Dark Phoenix and Lion King and Aladdin and and then Rise of Skywalker towards the end of the year. It's like oh, I think it was a 
not a great year for the blockbusters, and 2020 just went, you know what? Well, apart from Endgame, the highest grossing film. Yeah, yeah, that's beginning of April, so that yeah. kind of got out of there first. <laughs> Do you think that just took took everything yeah. else? All the others were just fucked because of Endgame, beam off, just destroyed everything. And you also had Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which was pretty lousy. Oh, bloody so. hell, yeah. yeah. What, what bothers me about this this stage, I know you've got a little bit more, Cam, is like, I'm not going to say about my thoughts on the film, but you've got like a treasure trove of actors here and a great director. Uh, sounds like a good writer. It should be a, a good film. Well, in theory. <laughs> in theory. <laughs> you've assembled the all-star team, I, I should say. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'll note is that this was not a good year for spy films either in terms of box office performance. <laughs> so Men in Black International actually beat all the other spy-related films on the top 200. Um, and beyond that, actually. And so at number 52, you had the animated film Spies in Disguise with uh, Will Smith. <laughs> at number 90, you had the Charlie's Angels reboot. At number 156, you had Luc Besson's Anna. And at number 298, you had the Kira Knightley drama Official Secrets. So not a great year for franchises or spy movies. <laughs> so there you have it. That kind of sums up 2019. But I will say there was a note in that story on The Hollywood Reporter from a Sony source where they said, in the wake of the box office performance of Men in Black International, they said, Men in Black will be revisited again, maybe as a series or as another movie. So this was not a franchise killer, but it just probably put it on ice for a little bit. That definitely sounds more like a threat now than anything else. <laughs> it will be back, all right? <laughs> Downgraded to TV series, though. <laughs> They're like shaking their fists in the air. <laughs> so yeah, that about sums it up for me, Scott. Okay, folks, we've spoken about it enough. Let's get into what we think about Men in Black International. Guests go first. I'm going to say, Liam, you're up. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I, I you know, I straight up hated this movie. Um, you know, I mean, I, I hadn't seen it, so I was intrigued. Um, you know, I'm not someone who wants to shit on movies or anything like that. I go into, literally do go into every movie I watch wanting to like it and kind of excited to kind of see it. Um, you know, like I said, the first Men in Black is great. Um, the two sequels, uh, I think are okay. I don't think they're terrible. I actually rewatched Men in Black 2, uh, because, just because I wanted to see if it was worse than Men in Black International, because I hadn't seen it since cinema, and I remember it not being great. But rewatching it, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, good particularly but in terms of uh Men in Black 2 and 3 I think they're kind of you know sub-average kind of movies you know that I think they're fine um they're just not a patch on the um first film um but you know I was interested to see what what this would do uh Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson both very talented people uh in the leads like you said F Gary Gray has done good stuff like I loved Straight Out of Compton um you know Fate of the Furious was a perfectly serviceable Fast and Furious movie um the negotiator's all right um but you know uh, it just it, Matt, I remember you said there's an award on some website uh, called the That Was a Movie Award or something like that. Oh, you're thinking of the, the Weekly Planet podcasts, uh, like Just a Movie Award. <laughs> oh, okay. And you said they gave it to Solo one year, 
Well, this was totally, <laughs> I think so. you know, that kind of like, it's it's the one of the most cookie-cutter product corporate-feeling films I've seen in years, where it really does feel, and, you know, it sounds like behind the scenes this was the case, does feel like too many cooks made by committee, uh, tab A and slot B kind of film, where it's not even, when I watch it, it's not even an interesting disaster like uh, we recently covered Batman and Robin uh, on the podcast from 1997, mm. uh, which is obviously often famed as one of the kind of biggest kind of, you know, turkeys of all time. But I would watch Batman and Robin like 20 times rather than watch Men in Black International again. Because Batman and Robin, as mad as it is, everything like that, and, you know, whether it's successful or not is another question. But it is fun in terms of to watch. You can have a laugh kind of watching it because it's kind of you know it's grand folly whereas this is not bad in that way it's just boring because it's just so soulless and that's my kind of take on men in black international i think you should stop pulling your punches liam and tell us what you really think (laughs) (laughs) yeah So we'll put you down as a liked. Okay, um, Matt, what about you? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there. Where it does feel like this is the pr- this is a really prime example of all the ingredients looking good on paper, and then nothing kind of clicking. And it takes it must take a miracle for nothing to really work because it's not even like Hemsworth and Thompson are unproved on screen together. They obviously have great chemistry in the in the Marvel films, but here it kind of just sucks it all out. And for me, I think it's a case of. Um, it's it's kind of all slick but no charm and the men in black films are always full of charm mostly you know through will smith of course and his really uh, dynamic performance but but here it's 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 just lacking that soul entirely and you know what it nearly kind of had me in the first 20 25 minutes because outside of the kind of cold open in paris where it does kind of end very abruptly but the reason for that kind of comes out later on the initial stuff with tessa thompson's character i was kind of getting into i quite like the idea of this character who had witnessed something as a kid had avoided being neuralized and obsessed over trying to find them that stuff was kind of cool and then it's like they kind of went all right, screw it, let's just get her in. And, you know, her just kind of walking into the headquarters kind of negates so much of the secrecy from already set up in this franchise. But then from that point on, it kind of tinkers along a bit. And you're about 40 minutes in when you realise the story hasn't even really started. Or if it has, it's kind of unclear as to what it really is and why we should care. And I think that's it. There's, There's very few reasons to care. And the script continuously pulls out... Uh, turns or twists that kind of keep the plot moving forward but are based on kind of nothing and it's either like characters coming out of nowhere or stuff like you know spoiler alert Liam Neeson eventually being the kind of villain and it's like this would mean something or land in any way if we'd spent any kind of time with him or were invested in his relationship with anybody and it's kind of like that across the board where it's just a very weird mix of characters feeling like they're walking on set for the first time in every scene um and not even the actors like the characters just meeting each other continuously and i think hemsworth is he's a he's a great guy but i think here his character's flawed i think his performance is a bit lacking and it's just adds up to being one of the many reasons why nothing really works here on top of everything from like the overuse of very cartoony looking cgi a lot of misplaced humor uh a very kind of drab villain for the bulk of the film um yeah the list kind of goes on but what what did you guys think is it is it similar to you 
Well, Cam, you're the only one who actually saw it around its cinematic release and have revisited it since. You didn't really like it then, by the sounds of it, but has your opinion changed? No. Oh. Um, <laughs> I don't... I, I actually prefer this one to Men in Black 2, which I just thought was really terrible and cynical, but... This movie is just such a nothing, and it makes the it commits the worst sin I find nowadays. And you know, it's interesting we are talking about blockbusters of this year and movies like Rise of Skywalker. This movie is almost entirely people over-explaining what should be, in theory, a fairly simple plot. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at the other Men in Blacks, they have a very well-honed premise. Like, what is the concept of this movie? How do we pay this off? Whereas this movie. It's trying to be this sort of convoluted whodunit, but it doesn't even have the confidence to do that well. So you just have characters running in circles, speaking constantly about the plot and giving exposition. And I find that actually far more confusing than what the movie's actually about. And so all I'm left with really is two actors who I think are charming in Hemsworth and Thompson. And I don't hate their chemistry together. The characters don't feel anywhere nearly uh, as well-defined as the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones characters. I don't think their chemistry makes a lot of sense. I don't understand their camaraderie as characters, but I like the two of them as actors and they make this kind of painless for me, even as I'm sitting there going, why is any of this happening? Like, why is this so confusing? I just don't understand how you go from movies that are basically 90 minute comedies that have, you know, kind of a fun, gooey directorial style with kind of some weird effects and they feel a little bit oddball to this which feels very slick, very kind of soulless, and really talky. Like, really, really talky in comparison to the previous films. And, you know, as we've said, this one's like 20, 25 minutes longer than the other films. Why? Why? Like, why are we in a film introducing these new characters, trying to set up a relationship? Why are we dropping them in a plot that requires so much convoluted, you know, backflips to make it, basically get it to all make sense by the end? I can't really argue any of that. I think I will just add my thoughts and then we'll get into the other bits and bobs. But I really sort of echo what Matt said. And they had this really charming idea at the beginning with Tessa Thompson's character having witnessed a denuralization, if that's the word. Um, And, you know, she tries all her life to get a job in the Men in Black. That's all quite interesting. And as soon as she gets the job, I don't care. Yeah. There's nothing there anymore. She she is instantly a super agent, which bothers me to no end. Um, I don't understand why Chris Hemsworth is looking to her for information when you know, he's been doing it for years. But overall, it just loses its charm at that point. And I will say a very damning thing about this film, and Cam can, can definitely echo this, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm an absolute idiot. And my second note, and this is the first time I watched the film, was... Liam Neeson is the bad guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. Um, I, I just don't understand. So much of this movie is about the Chris Hemsworth character and people saying he's not the same agent we used to know. This is not the same man. Um, I don't know. What was the original guy like? I have no concept of who he was. That's mm-hmm. a big problem. Like, that's the sort of thing you want to establish that character very well so that we can understand the change. But by the end, when all is fixed, he seems kind of the same dude anyway. Yeah, and you seem the same in the prologue. So it's like, literally, <laughs> I just go, there's, there's nothing, when I was, it was like, there's nothing different about him. He's exactly the same bloke. It's just that when you ask him about that Pacific event, he repeats the same thing. That's the only thing that's different. 
Yeah, it's almost a shame because it's like, you know, the twist being that he's been neuralized, which is actually kind of a cool idea that, you know, this main actual agent character this whole time has been memory wiped from the past but it leaves him almost like this brain dead zombie for the film and you just you don't question it because you think they're just playing the kind of laid back hunk character when really he's essentially just like sleepwalking through his job and you're right it's like the effects of you know his shitty behavior and his competence that we're witnessing throughout the film would mean something if we actually saw him in his prime with his prime and I, you know my notes are like was his prime meant to be that paris thing wasn't that only a year ago and all these sorts of things and it's like well hang on yeah this is signposting what the eventual answer is but in a bad way because it means that the answer is sort of just kneecapping your entire film because it's leaving you with a character who is very clueless and you're right has to turn to the other character Francis who is meant to be a complete newbie so <laughs> it's not a great look for the uh, Hemsworth character and I was also just uh, on a minutia related uh, tangent I was very confused at the intro of the movie you have it set up in 2016 him and Neeson are going on this mission right and then a card shows up that says 20 years earlier and I'm like, wait, is this 20 years earlier from 2016 or from 2019 when this movie takes place? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of that. Oh, God. That's horrible. Well, yeah, because I thought if, it, if it's 20 years earlier from 2016, that puts it 1996. So then I thought, oh, these two agents that are appearing at young Tessa Thompson's house, one of them surely has to be Tommy Lee Jones as a cameo. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of like, her parents have been neuralized, and it's this neuralization that sends her on the path to Men in Black, whereas him, it changes his fate. But the movie's not interested in really delving into that material, the ramifications of the neuralizer. But I think they maybe had an interesting idea there, just in the a kernel of an idea off the you know at the outset there. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, Scott's totally right in that once she's in the job, all her past backstories completely jettisoned. Like there's no lingering like trauma about this life that she's left behind because she moans about you know my whole life is nothing. That's why I'm great for the job. But there's there's no residual nothingness about presumably her parents who have just you know been memory wiped like um. All of that becomes completely null and void. And you could have just started the film with her just being a, a new recruit, basically. And, and all that stuff of fighting to get in is barely usable, other than that she has maybe, you know, slight more knowledge about certain things because she's been such an obsessive uh, researcher all this time. But it does. it feels like that doesn't tie in in the right way. It just feels wow. like they're just writing out the answers, so... It does tie in, but not in the right way, in the sense of it turns out the entire reason for it is just so the alien she met at the start can be the alien at the end, which was the biggest Ugh. load of fucking bullshit that I have ever seen. Yeah, I wrote down M's childhood aliens, the same random henchman in Italy. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I was getting very strong Lilo and Stitch vibes off that opening. Yes. I can't help but wonder if that was intentional. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just cut off cuts from the Lilo and Stitch live action remake that we're definitely getting at some point. Uh, it's it's in development. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is in development. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, they they riff on other films in this film, and there's, there's one moment I'll get to later. But you both mentioned that you rewatched Men in Black for this. And mm. the whole charm of Will Smith's character is that he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's very good at what he does. Yes. He's a very yeah, street smarts versus uh, agency smart. smarts, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Mm. But she doesn't have either of those charms. I love Tessa Thompson. She's great in tons of things I've seen her in, 
but this this just isn't for her. This this she's a great actress, but what is on the page and what is done by her, you know, her coaches on set is just not very good. I also don't get it because they set her up as someone who's very you know, she has studied her whole life for this. This is someone single-minded and focused. And you're like, okay, I kind of get it. She's basically the keener uh, trying to prop up this sort of, uh, this dude who's kind of lost his way. I kind of get that. But then we have scenes where they go to like the club and she's lied about knowing any of the alien language. And I'm like, wait, does she know a lot or does she just fake everything? I don't really get it. Yeah, I mean, with, with Tessa Thompson, it is. I agree with you. It does seem weird in terms of because we haven't really watched her. We haven't really watched her in between being a child and now. We just know that she's been searching for the Men in Black all this time. But at the moment, she seems to be working like a call center or whatever, and it's just kind of. But she doesn't really seem to have any training, like you say, or anything like that. But it's like I guess, but she's amazing. So I guess we're to believe that she's just kind of self-trained herself at some point, like in the earlier parts of her life, like, you know, but she doesn't, it's not like she's Bruce Wayne. She's been able to travel the world (laughs) and kind of, you know, uh, train herself up and everything and learn. She's been working in places like call centers. So I'm just kind of like, when did you become this super duper agent? It's that thing where they say, you know, it's that thing where they say that she's in her probation period for the film. So that kind of is their get out of jail free card in that element. But you're right, and it doesn't work in that at times Hemsworth is very much in charge. Like that, that bit during that London set, uh, London set action scene, which I quite liked with all the all the guns being in various hidden yeah, away in the car. Funny. That's quite a funny funny gag. And you know, he's so he's obviously saying, look, there's this here, and this is how it works. And then, uh, but yeah, I just don't think uh, it all it all ties up there, and, and it's a shame. Well, you also have that sequence early in the movie, which is actually the most uh, spy movie-like scene in the entire franchise, which is um, Chris Hemsworth at that card game um, dealing with, like, the crime lords. And I'm like, wow, this feels, like, very much like a spy movie. But they're also portraying him as somewhat of, like, a James Bond-like figure. And uh, you don't really get any hints of that going forward in the movie. Like, he comes across as being fairly on the ball in that sequence. And then mm-hmm. later on, he's like asleep at his desk. And you're like, wait, is this guy like a genius in the field who's kind of eccentric? No, he's just kind of an idiot, it seems, a lot of the time. Yeah, he's like a kind of slacker character some of the time, isn't he? But at the same time, like you say, they are leaning into kind of James Bond tropes. In fact, one of the things I noticed about this film is it seems to lean into a lot of spy movie tropes far more than the other Men in Black films. Like, it often it doesn't really feel like a Men in Black film, but more of a, you know, James Bond movie with the real, with globe-trotting aspect mm-hmm. of it, which is, is not a Men in Black thing at all. Um, it's a very Carbondian. I swear, towards the end, Emma Thompson says, Welcome to the Circus. Like, it's fucking Tinker Taylor or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> Tess Dawson. So I was like, that really confused me. And there's, like, you know, bits of born in there and all kinds of things. It just, because there's, you know, there's full on kind of, you know, fist fight scenes, like, towards the end where they're having real fisticuffs, which has never really been a big part of Men in Black before and stuff like that, with Tess Thompson having a real kind of showdown uh, with Rebecca Ferguson and stuff like that. Um, It just seemed, yeah, to be leaning into other kind of franchises rather than the one it's meant to be. Well, I mean, you also have this whole idea of a mole 
in Men in Black, which... Oh, 24! Yeah! Yeah, that's very um, spy movie, as well as <laughs> we have Rafe Spall playing a character named C. C for careless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that when he turned up. I was like, what C? Like, from Spectre? Like, yeah. And I swear, um... Oh, is, there's some, isn't someone called M in it? Isn't there an agent? Yeah, Tessa Thompson's character is M. Yes, Tess Thompson is called M, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are they using the Bond letters? Well, I, I'm going to say, I'm all for that, because what we've lamented in the past, Cam, is that they've not done anything with this universe of Men in Black. Mm? They've kept it very just sort of contained within New York, whereas you know, there's a whole intergalactic, you know, whatever going on. And so doing these other things, spy tropes, going to London, it sounds great, but it, I don't think they execute it particularly well. Yeah, no, that's that's I think that's where it falls down because yeah, with the Bond stuff, I felt it was it was becoming very Mission Impossible as well because you got Rebecca Ferguson showing up, you've got you know the mm-hmm. mole in the agency, which is very kind of IMF, um, but the globetrotting stuff, it, it fit, what this what this film feels like its focus is on is kind of more of the world building whereas in the originals because maybe because of the new york setting as being quite insular but it still felt like it got across what you needed to know about how the agency works and everything very well whereas here it's like okay we're opening stuff up so we get to see what the london branch is like and how they travel and all these sorts of things so it's lots of kind of just law world buildy stuff that kind of pushes them through the story and it's a shame because it gets too overwhelming, I think. I think they try and, like, mm. introduce too much, too many new stuff. And there are ideas in here which are great, like the idea of kind of aliens running a crime business. Um, but there's just so many parts that then just fall down. Like, you know, I, I did quite like that introductory Hemsworth scene with the card game, but it ends in a weird way of, so does that alien squid lady let her husband or whoever die just because she wants to bang him? Like, uh, that's a, that felt very Bondy. like I'm going to get him into bed. So Well, it is Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, this is, yeah, this is something we should talk about in the sense of obviously Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are our leads here. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, two of the best looking, sexiest movie stars around. Um, and I was like, it struck me as odd because it just seemed like XX had gone, who's hot right now? Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, get them in. But I was like, was Men in Black ever about that like Tommy Lee Jones is is not a looker Will Smith is someone who can he has a lot of charisma but he's not kind of classically kind of handsome in a Hemsworth way or anything like that and for me Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith their duo was far more about a chalk and cheese kind of thing and comedic whereas here it just seemed far more oh they'll look they'll look fucking sexy in the suits, like, that's all we need, get them on screen. And I was like, surely that's kind of getting away from what Men in Black is about. Is it really that kind Mm. of franchise? I also think it would be far more interesting, because when you look at that Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, the reason that movie grabbed people so much was that was not a pairing that made sense on paper. Um, And I, I wonder if it would have been smarter to do a pairing in this movie that really took people by surprise. Like, I never would have thought of those two actors being in a blockbuster together versus having that obvious comparison point where anyone can look at this movie and say, well, I like them more in Thor Ragnarok because people really love Thor Ragnarok. So like you're kind of asking to be compared to that movie in terms of their pairing. Yeah, no, definitely. I I agree completely. It literally is 
it is as simple as that, isn't it? It's just going, oh, people love them in four Ragnarok together. Right, let's get four and Valkyrie back on the screen. You know, right down to Hemsworth is doing his four accent. He just sounds like four, isn't it? Yeah. Well, here's a question I have written down for everyone. I'll just throw it out there about Chris Hemsworth's performance. Do you think he is too pretty to be believable in this role? Because he, they have to, you know, make him fat to be upset <laughs> in Endgame. Um, you think of stuff like what else has he done recently? Obviously, there's this. There was that Netflix movie, oh, Extraction. Yeah, Extraction. Extraction, where he's kind of sad for a little bit. But I couldn't buy any of his like emotional struggle in this film because every other minute he was walking around in a sandy desert, looking like it was a you know Calvin Klein advert. Well, it's tricky because I don't I don't think his his looks kind of do him that disservice normally. But here I think the writing on the character is so bad, and it does feel like you know he's he's doing this weird kind of semi whisper of every one liner and every kind of bit of improv thing. And, uh, you know, he is a funny guy. Like, he's, he's, he's a really great bright spot in the Ghostbusters uh, remake. And he's naturally very funny as Thor. But I think here, for whatever reason, it feels very much more try-hard and knowing, like, in a, in a bad way. And everything, every time when he's trying to do a funny bit, it feels like he's winking at the audience a bit too much. Like, when he picks up the hammer and it's like, oh, there's the Thor gag and stuff. And it just suddenly makes it not funny but i think he definitely has the ability to make you believe in him as a character because i think a lot of his performance in endgame is actually really really strong um but here i just don't think anything else services him and either he's not either he knows it and he's not trying or he's trying really hard and it's still not working <laughs> well and also i mean this character is introduced in that james bondian sequence we also see a scene where he's walking to the mib headquarters and an alien woman is like slowing down time or something so it's yeah. oh yes that's really weird it's weird and it's just uncomfortable to watch like it's it's a really bad moment but they're setting up this character as like this dreamy hunk of a character who's you know maybe a little bit reckless but boy is he cool under pressure as we saw in the spy sequence but like so much of the tragedy of this character is that he's been neuralized like that's what we're supposed to grapple with but we don't get that until they're literally in an elevator going up to the final confrontation. Like, he's not a character who's grappling with anything throughout the movie. Yeah, completely. You never even feel like, I mean, even in Men in Black 2, um, you know, which I, as I said, I rewatched the other day, obviously the, the crux of that is to do with bringing Tommy Lee Jones' character back, who got neuralized at the end of the first one. And even. Like, though that is not a great film or anything like that at all, um, Tommy Lee Jones does give you a bit of wistfulness in terms of when he is the neuralized version um, of uh, Kay in that film, uh, where he's kind of, you know, looking at the stars and he does, he, there is a, a faint glimmer of a memory there, um, but he can't just, he just can't quite see it. And with that, Tommy Lee Jones does have that kind of pathos within his character. Whereas with this, it's more just they play it, like you say, like he's just randomly a little bit kind of slackerish and lunk-headed occasionally. There's never really a feeling of there's something he can't remember and it's like haunting him, which with this would have been interesting because of the fact that it's not that he's been made to forget everything about his life. He's been made to forget this very specific event. And it's that thing of if he all along, because he's still working within the Men in Black world, every time he saw that painting or say he was desperately trying to remember 
and he would be like haunted and by you know nightmares or something like that. Like he was a more haunted character. That could be more interesting. Definitely, and you know, so much of this movie is, as we've said, world building. I'm just curious, you know, did the story work for you guys? Because I think when you look at the other Men in Blacks, the stories are very basic. They're, despite the fact the other Men in Black films had a lot of production problems, um, really every single one did. I think they came up with storylines that were fairly engaging and kept it to the point. Were you guys ever grabbed by this whole story of what the hive? I don't even know what the hive is, but... Um, you know, this whole thing with the hive and an invasion and what have you, and a box that's being passed around. Like, did any of that feel well, you know, defined to you guys? No, definitely not. I mean, it literally, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those films that, like, you know, depressed me to even try and follow. Like you say, it's not, it, it, it's not a smart movie, but what they do is this happens a lot with, with kind of blockbusters, this nature where these kind of corporate product movies is they'll take a very simple idea and then weirdly overcomplicate it with the pot by chucking loads of different stuff in it. And it's just that thing of like, this is you're making this stupid movie too complicated. This is not a complicated idea, but your storytelling is so bad that it's now making it complicated. What's, what's even more damning about this whole hive thing as well is, you know, throughout most of this film, you have the twins from Matrix Reloaded mm. uh, chasing you around, and they're the hive, and they're trying to get this weapon. And then in a sentence, oh, they're not actually from the hive, and they weren't actually the bad guys, but don't worry about that. We've killed them now. <laughs> Horribly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're ripped out of existence, uh, and now we have to focus on something else. So these two good guys that have been killed, great, but we don't have time to reflect on that because we have to have a, a lift trip with uh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, I had no idea about all that stuff. And with, with The Hive, it was like, because it's weird how that's kind of named as the baddie, but essentially what it is is something to do with The Hive shows up in Paris, but and, I don't know, takes over Liam Neeson, but we don't see that. Then we have the red herring of the two twins for nearly the whole film, and then at the end it's like, oh no, I'm actually part of the hive and it's just an odd thing and it, you're right it's too complicated and then there's nothing comes close to the um simplicity or performance of someone like vincent d'onofrio from the first one who is incredibly engaging really really creepy and it's a great blend you know of practical and and cgi uh, by the end but here i get i got you know pure mummy returns vibes for this finale set piece like it's very nearly scorpion king bursting in thank god it wasn't quite that but yeah i don't know well, I was just going to say, plus Vincent D'Onofrio's villain in the first film is inherently funny. Like it's like you say, it's yeah. gross and stuff, but it is, it's a funny visual, it's a funny idea. Um, in it's like terms a human cockroach. He, yeah, well, it's a funny idea of, you know, he's taken over this guy, and he's too big for the body, and the skin's all decomposing around him and stuff. It's, it's gross out, but it is funny. Whereas the bad guys in this, there's nothing kind of amusing about them at all. It's just like they're just bad guys in this movie. All of the comedy in this film feels very, very tacked on. Whereas in the first film, it feels very organic uh, and from Mm. the characters Mm -hmm. and the plot naturally. Whereas this, it's just kind of, there is a plot which has been, and characters that have been honed by committee. And then you feel like, Things like Hemsworth and Thompson's fucking dialogue coaches have come on and thrown in a couple of gags. And, you know, speaking of villains, um, I've seen this movie twice. 
both times throughout the movie, because it didn't stick with me, obviously, after the first time. When they kept talking about this, um, was it like Mistress of Death or something that Hemsworth had a relationship with? I assumed they were talking about the woman at the start of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Because they they name drop this Riza character constantly. And I'm like, oh, of course, that must be the character I met earlier in the movie. And both (laughs) times, you would think, right? And both times I'm (laughs) fooled. But here's a question for you. Can anyone answer the question to me? Why do we go, like, for story purposes, why does this Rebecca Ferguson character exist? And why do we go to her little compound? For 20 minutes of screen time. Yes. There's no other reason. Because the only thing is, they have that box, this, you know, weapon that is the, what, the weaponized star or something like that. It gets stolen by that beard alien. Mm-hmm. They have to chase it to her compound. That's it. They have to go to retrieve this weapon from her. That's the only reason she's in this movie. The only thing that pays off this alien at the start of the movie that Tessa Thompson's characters met. It's entirely a 20-minute diversion that adds nothing to the movie. It has nothing to do with the story. Hang on. No, 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 no. It, it, does, it does add Chris Hemsworth in a pink shirt. True, I suppose. I mean, that is very important, to be fair. Uh, but, I mean, he's just... I think it's this globe, globe-trotting as, uh, aspect. They are clearly wanted to get in for some reason, despite it not being something from the original Men in Black films at all. Um, you know, it just seems to be making it very Bondian for no reason that they want to throw those aspects in. Well, I wrote down something about the bad guys. I wrote down in my notes uh, just sort of a timeline of the Men in Black films. And so we've got Men in Black 1, Alien is bad. Men in Black 2, Alien is bad. Men in Black 3, Alien is bad. So you'd think maybe on the fourth one they might try and do something different. And so they go, yeah, we're going to have Liam Neeson as the bad guy. But they don't even commit to that. They make him a, a you know chameleon thing by the end. So it's just alien bad again. Plus also Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah, because don't they try and say... Yeah, don't they try and say that Neeson... It's not a case of him... Well, no, because there's that bit where he tries to get through to him, doesn't he? And his eyes change. So it's almost like he's saying the original Liam Neeson is in there still. But at the same time, it also makes it feel like he's just dead and gone. And it's not him anymore. It's like, which is it? (laughs) Well, was Liam Neeson taken over while Chris Hemsworth was having his Superman 2 adventure... Um, in the elevator in the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, I yeah, guess I guess that's so. what they, you were meant to think. Well, yeah. I don't mm. know about that. You know, I don't know because it cuts off at the beginning when they're both heading towards the thing, and I just was like, "Oh, I guess there was a battle and they lost, and Neeson got taken over, who neuralized Hemsworth, and then that was that, and went kind of deep cover." Um, I'll say another thing about the funny talk about the globe-trotting aspect and how kind of pointless it is. That opening prologue, of course, which is set in Paris, I mean, obviously, quite clearly, they did not go to Paris to shoot that fucking yeah. sequence. Because <laughs> I, think, I think Liam Neeson even gets in some kind of, you know, gag about hating Paris. And like, it was one of the first lines in there. I was like, well, clearly, because you obviously refused to go there, Neeson, because they had to shoot this all on fucking <laughs> green screen, because you immediately see a giant, like, CG Eiffel Tower and completely green screen backgrounds. And I just, like, fucking hate that shit. He's like, guys, you've got the money to go and shoot 
in Paris, if you really want to do that, which I don't know why you, it's important anyway, couldn't this be set up like, you know, um, a, the Chrysler building or something? You know what I mean? Why does it have to be the Eiffel Tower? Spent all their money shooting in London outside of Greg's. You know, that's that's where the money went. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a Greg's. It's not even a Greg's. It's an eat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even an eat. It's a soundstage that uh, randomly <laughs> I happened to read uh, around the time they were making this an article behind the scenes which described the shooting of that scene and those bits where they the bit with the car and all of the different car weapons and you've got an E and all that kind of stuff that is a soundstage and they just meticulously recreated oh, a really? certain street huh. in London on a soundstage. Because so I know that exact pointless. street, and I've, yeah, I've, yeah, I've been yeah. in a coffee shop across the road many times it's thinking, oh, this replica. is funny. It's an exact replica of that street Ugh. on a soundstage. Um, I would also say Marrakesh was also a soundstage. <laughs> <laughs> and the desert, for sure. Blue screen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big time. Um, as we're talking about effects here, um, we need to talk about Pawnee, the yeah. character voiced by Kamal Nanjiani who may be one of the most poorly integrated CG characters I've seen in a long time, where, you know, they introduce him. I don't hate the concept of this character. I don't even know if I hate the character that much. But he never feels like he's in the movie. A lot of it is just Kamel Nanjiani voiceover on the, uh, uh, you know, on the on the uh, film, where the character is not even Yeah, visible. like single-shot close-ups of him, right? Where it's very little inter- in- integration. Yeah, like half the time he's not shown at all. Like, they'll pick him up. And then he's invisible for minutes at a time, but you'll hear his voice um, somewhere, you know, disconnected from any sort of physical body. You're like, oh, I guess he's here somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah, Liam was saying about the comedy and I think and how, you know, there's not much of it organically placed in. And I feel this is where they went. Right. This is where we're going to cram it all within this character because he showed up and I thought he was going to be like a one scene move on thing. But he becomes like the third part of the team for the entire like final act, basically, and more. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, and I, to be fair, he's probably the thing that made me laugh the most in the film. I mean, when when I say laugh, I do kind of mean a mild titter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, Kamal Nanjani, I think, is a naturally funny comic mm-hmm. persona. I think that given to another actor, this character might not have been funny at all. I think given to him his delivery can be naturally funny um, within the film. And I think he perks up some moments um, by being there. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's it's not a great thing. And like you say, Matt, it's that thing of it feels very much like, oh, they've just thrown almost out of desperation, just gone, you know, oh, which which comic actor is hot right now? Come on, Johnny, just come off the big <laughs> sit quickly, throw him in. Like, uh, like, you know, just so desperate to inject some laughs into proceedings. And, uh, I mean, you know, you referenced Ghostbusters, uh, the you know, the 2016 reboot a while back. Um, did anyone else pick up on the similarities between Pawnee having a tether and, like, basically diving into this portal to save Tessa Thompson with the ending of the 2016 Ghostbusters, like they're very similar and they're both Sony productions and they're both re- uh, reboots of Sony products. I mean, you have to remind me of the ending of the 2016 Ghostbusters at this point. I've seen it. I've seen it once and it's kind of exited my mind. I'll jog everyone's memory <laughs> where um, I believe it's, I can't remember which character it is, whether it's Kristen Wiig or Melissa McCarthy. One of them falls into a portal in the ground 
And the other one ties, you know, like a rappel cord and dives in the portal after them to save them. And it's this extended portal sequence, which feels almost the exact same thing as we get here. God, I don't remember that at all. I, I, I should say that the I'm not hating on the 2016 Ghostbusters uh, movie. It's a lot better than this. Um, yeah. Even though I don't think it's hugely uh, successful either, but I do, I do not remember that at all. That is completely past me, past me by. Uh, it's been been too long, clearly, since I've seen it. It definitely has that too many cooks in the kitchen thing, though, where I'm like, okay, yeah, totally. Sony is making this movie. Um, why, why, when they're rebooting something, is that their go-to in two movies <laughs> that like opened what three three years apart? You gotta get the portal sequence in. It worked so well in the 2016 Ghostbusters. <laughs> it was such a huge hit. Get the fucking portals in. It tested so high. It's the new big blue light into the sky. Do it. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that in a comedy sort of slash sci-fi slash loosely spy film, there was barely a joke? <laughs> yeah. I was just saying, can, can it even count as a comedy? That's the thing in terms of, yeah. it, it, it doesn't even, if you compare it to the original film, it doesn't even feel like it's aiming for funny, particularly. Like, it, it doesn't feel like it's particularly bothered about being a comedy. It feels more like, you know, just a sci-fi kind of spy action movie that they went, oh, at some point, yeah, throw some jokes in, rather than actually being a straight-up comedy. Well, you do get, like, weird little jokes that are, some of them are really bad, like where Pawnee makes a reference to, like, a new Kanye album, and you're like, oh, boy. (laughs) Like, those are the types of pop culture references that were really grating in. (laughs) Yeah, so topical. (laughs) Those are the types of references they were throwing into Men in Black 2 that were like really grating where they'd hired someone to actually insert pop culture references, like who let the dogs out. That's the sort of stuff that you could kind of detect in this movie as well. Controversial, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take Pawnee over Frank the pug. Oh, wow. Um, Oh boy. Um, geez. I don't know. Like Frank, the pug in little bits and pieces, like um, the first one, I'm, I think I could be down on the side of pro him, but, um, Boy, when they're extending his his scenes in Men in Black 2 and giving him the who let the dogs out kind of stuff, that's pretty grating too. So I might agree with you there. But here's a question. Was that Frank the Pug in this movie or is that another pug? Because I was under the impression from Men in Black 3 where uh, Will Smith had the giant poster of Frank on his wall, his bedroom wall no less, Mm -hmm. that Frank was dead. Yeah, that's what I got. Uh, Apparently it is Frank the Pug and the same voice actor, apparently. So what you're saying is that Will Smith's character in Men in Black 3 is so enamored with his co-worker <laughs> that he hung and living co-worker, no less, not one who died in the line of duty or something, that he hung an enormous portrait of this per- of this character's <laughs> face in his bedroom. Must love dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Will Smith's character is apparently, thanks to this movie, more insane than I even realized. <laughs> well, of course, the only other link to the other films is Emma Thompson in it, who's in only introduced in Men in Black 3 as a replacement for Rick Torn um, in that film. And I've got to say, that's just that on its own pissed me off because when the, the big link between the movies is a character who's introduced in the third fucking film that no one cares about anyway, 
I'm just kind of, oh, fuck off. Just literally just make it. With this film, I, I did just go, I think you should have just made it a total reboot and completely unconnected to the other movies. Because I think by even trying to connect it, mm. it kind of makes it more cumbersome. And for me, like this movie, it just proves that total thing of... Because like we were talking about the first one being far more self-contained. And to me, that's that's a good thing with the world of Men in Black. It feels like this thing that, should, yeah, keep it local, keep it kind of city-bound in this little kind of thing. You know, they're just this little outfit out there. Whereas here, where they make it this global thing, and suddenly, I mean, straight away, I was like, right, well, are there 26 agents at every single office or 26 agents worldwide? Because neither of them make sense. <laughs> Actually, that's what I think. I think your answer's right there in the terms of, you know, what to split away from the first few films is that the it's it's about the international branch. So just have it completely separate from New York. Yeah. Set it all around the mm-hmm. London branch with all London based characters and just then you don't need this kind of weird baton passing or, or introduction from the New York side where we ha- we do have to awkwardly kind of have this vague reference to the past. Um just just have the whole thing be somewhere and say this is what's happening elsewhere in the world. So then it can be basically a straight up reboot, but you are not resetting the universe. You know, you're just saying this is just uh, European adventure, you know. Well, also, I mean, if you remove the Emma Thompson character, and look, I love Emma Thompson. I think she's doing what she can with this kind of material. But if you remove her, you could introduce Liam Neeson up front, recruiting Tessa Thompson yeah. and establish him as a character because he's not a character in this movie. He's he's kind of a nothing. He's Liam Neeson. Mm. Yeah, he's barely there, is he? Kind of like... That's the thing, you don't really give a shit about him turning into a bad guy later on, because apart from the prologue, where he's kind of front and centre, he's kind of just cameoing. He's, he's barely fucking in it. Yeah, it's it's um an odd choice, just from a storytelling perspective, I don't know. I mean, just touching on the, the connections before we move on to anything else, I was... I, I completely agree that I think they should have just stuck to London, or set it somewhere else and then moved to London, because... I found myself several times trying to think, well, Will Smith should be here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, not in the bit at the beginning, because it's technically a year before Men in Black 1 was set. So I, I get Tommy Lee Jones not being there. I get Will Smith not being there. But then she's in the hall with Agent O when she's been recruited. Why is Will Smith not there to greet them? And then at the end, she calls in and says, oh, I'm sending backup. And you're like, oh, boy, Will Smith cameo. He's only got to be there for 10 seconds. That's great. Nope, no one. It's just some guys in that bus. (laughs) You get a painting on the wall. (laughs) Yeah, the painting on the wall. Fuck it. I mean, this is, this all kind of builds into the fact that uh, any, any film like this, any film franchise like this, as soon as they start building too much mythology into it, instantly rendered boring. Like the, the thing of the painting showing their great feature. I'm like, wait a minute, aren't they meant to be a secret agency? Why are they commissioning paintings of their like, <laughs> greatest achievements and stuff like that? And just the the whole thing where it instantly becomes like anime. Like, even a character like Rafe Spall, he doesn't even feel like a character who should be around in this kind of Men in Black world. It's like, who is he? Like, the admin guy? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, how did he get a job? <laughs> yeah, like he's not the best of the best of the best, sir, is he? Oh, so the whole painting thing, yeah, it makes it brings up the question of that's purely just to reference Tom Lee Jones and Will Smith because are they saying the grand total of their achievements are the events of film one and something that happened three years ago in Paris and that's it? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And then conveniently missing out the bit that happened in two where they saved the mm-hmm. universe. And uh, the, the bit that happened in three where they went back in time and saved the universe. But whatever. They're like one painting per partnership. That's it. That's right. Um, well, I think we've kind of uh, gutted this film as much as we can. Or have we? Yeah. But uh, I, I think we've kind of gone... We usually go through the characters, but I think we've kind of naturally gone through the main actors in the film. So what I'll do is I'll throw it out to everyone for any final notes before we get to the knock list. So, Liam, any final notes on the film? Uh, you know, just that I resented watching it. And, um, it, yeah, I just think... Like I say, I think I, I think we've said it already. It's just soulless, bland, cookie cutter, uh, corporate nonsense. And you know, unfortunately, I think it's got lots of good ingredients. Like I say, I, I like Hemsworth. I, uh, Tessa Thompson is is fucking brilliant. She's a fantastic actress in the Creed films, in MCU, in Dear White People. Um, she's mm-hmm. absolutely fucking brilliant in that. Um, you know, it, it's not that I dislike any of these people. Um, it just it just doesn't hold together at all, and everyone just feels like they're picking up the check. And yeah, Hemsworth and Thompson, I think, I think they're trying. I think they're trying with what they've got, but they just they they can't save this. I don't think they're the problem. It's just it. No one should have signed up for this. I mean, to be fair. Like, you know, you talked a lot about the behind-the-scenes stuff, and it sounds like the original script was more darker and had kind of elements to do with immigration and stuff like that, and that's why they signed up. And maybe maybe there was interesting stuff there, although I would argue that the whole alien immigration analogy has, has been done to death already, so maybe not. Um, but, yeah, no, it just doesn't work. It's a franchise killer for me. What about you, Matt? Yeah, same. It's a shame. I mean, there's nothing more gutting than when a film comes along that does have all these all these fun ingredients in it, and then you end up being disappointed, and then through, you know, talking about it on a podcast such as this, you end up kind of rewriting it a bit and going, oh, if they just done this, it could have opened up so many other doors, and, and I think that that's, that's it. There was so much potential for this to be a great kind of late in the day sequel that can act as a reboot but it can it doesn't have to jettison the lore or the world or what's come before but it can definitely set itself apart introduce new characters and instead they ham-fisted themselves by tying themselves to the new york stuff um writing these two very uh sort of bland lead characters casting it lazily with people who are great and do who do work together but the very fact of them not gelling in this kind of highlights even more the fact that you know chemistry is a strange thing and it's very much dependent on the project as well um it's you know it's it's such a great premise for a franchise anyway you know people have said it is like the the alien version of something like a ghostbusters where that's kind of blue collar guys opening a you know a ghost hunting business and this is like government agency dealing of aliens and there's been a few other um copycats out there like ripd trying to do the same thing but for for ghosts uh, well for dead people that's kind of very much a ghostbusters men in black blend so the, the you know the potential for more adventures in this world is right there and i just think they kind of drop the ball on all of it and to be honest you know the most you know the most tension i felt whilst uh with this whole endeavor was the the, the challenge of getting the film to me in time so <laughs> i i had rented the disc from cinema parody so 
a great DVD sort of online rental thing that does still exist. And it arrived broken, unfortunately. And so I had to send it back. And then it was the whole thing. Is it going to get to me in time? And then they did allocate it me and it got sent out. And today I was waiting for this disc to show up. And I was just worried I would have to buy this film online through uh, through iTunes store or whatever. And luckily the disc came. And that was the highlight of my day. But then I had to watch the film. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that story had more believable twists than the film. <laughs> um. I'll jump in, Cam, before you've, unless you've got anything. No, go ahead. Well, I had two quick notes. Uh, the first note was there's this feminism subplot that's sort of mentioned yeah. uh, by Agent O and, and Tessa Thompson and Agent M. Like, oh, it's the men in black. But if you're going to talk about this stuff, don't just do this surface level, like tossing off a one line. Yeah, I agree. Actually deal yeah. with the issue of it. it, it I, yeah. Or don't mention it. Yeah. I, no, I agree. It's it's a little um, it's a sort of moment that just makes you go like, Ugh, that's a little cringy. It pure lip service. Absolutely, yeah. it's not doing anyone any favors for representation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a quick note I wanted to make mention of. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys pay attention to IMDb and go into the details, but Vern Troyer did have something to do with this film. Oh hmm. God, <laughs> what is that, Scott? So, um, basically, they had Vern Troyer do the mocap for Pawnee. Oh. Wait a second. You're making this up, aren't well, you? Well, well, I'm said, not having yeah. to go, but <laughs> is, isn't Vern Troyer dead? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think he's dead now. Um, <laughs> we're we're playing off of a, After uh, he watched this yeah, film, it, he was so disappointed <laughs> he ceased to be. That, that, was, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, unfortunately, on that one. <laughs> Uh, no, listeners will know that I've been ribbing Cam about Vern Troyer since Men in Black won his <laughs> fateful mistake. So, uh, yeah. thoroughly deserves that. Consider me served. Um, as for me, like, I don't have any real, like, interesting points really to raise. Just that this movie had three editors, and it feels like it. It feels like a movie that's just kind of been hastily kind of thrown together into something they could crank out and try to get money out of didn't really work out for them but it's not a movie that i can ever really hate because i didn't find it aggressively unpleasant to sit through but it just feels like such a missed opportunity when you have tessa thompson's character is so obsessed with the truth of the universe the truth of the universe this movie has no interest in exploring anything to do with any sort of higher power or what's out there in the universe it doesn't care at all so i just think it's a missed opportunity of what could have been but uh I think, uh, Scott, that probably brings us to the question, right? I think it does. Now, gentlemen, we're going to discuss the knock list now. Cam, can you give everyone listening and, and the guys here just a quick description of what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts canon, where we vote every week on which film belongs in the pantheon of all time great spy films. And none of the Men in Black films have made it so far. So this is Men oh, in Black's none last. None of them. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is this is Men in Black's last chance to make it in. So no pressure. But uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt, you're up. Well, uh, does does Men in Black International make the knock list? I'm afraid to say it does not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, yeah. Fair enough, Liam. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think this is going to buck the trend, is it, uh, with Men in Black series? <laughs> no, I no way. I mean, I would have thought the first one maybe had a chance. I suppose, I, 
I assume you are going like only five star masterpieces allowed in the knock list. Is that is that right? Um, it really depends. I think there's different criteria all the time, but with Men in Black, we just didn't feel it had strong enough spy elements to belong on a spy cannon. Right, right. It's more kind of shady government agency, is it? Well, yeah, Men in Black Intention, no fucking way. In, in the opposite of whatever the knock list is, the Room 101 of spy movies, maybe. <laughs> oh, such a shame, because this was probably the best chance the franchise would have had then, because this is the most spy film one, but it is also the worst, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Yeah, it's a no for me as well. Um, <laughs> clean sweep for Men in Black, but, um, yeah, it's just... This is... I wish I had a hot take. I wish I could say, like, people, the audience was wrong. This is a real hidden gem. I cannot say that <laughs> with a straight face. So that's three no's. It's down to me now. Can I give it one final yes? Can I? No, I can't. Uh, one one reviewer, <laughs> I think for The Telegraph, uh, reviewed this as innocuous. <laughs> and I would tend to agree. It's just, you've got this all-star lineup of, of writers and actors, like I said in the beginning, and they just fumble. They fumble from the very get-go, and they keep fumbling until the fucking end. I, I don't usually swear, but I swore on that one. And it's such a shame, because I really thought it had some new blood and some revitalization. I just thought that the reviews were wrong, which can be the case, but unfortunately, it was just a waste of two hours of my life. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Yeah. So, Scott, we should just, uh, to wrap up Men in Black, give our rankings. I don't know. Are you and I have the same ranking where it goes uh, one, three, four, two? Yeah, I'm the same. I would say in terms of rankings, it's one, three, four, two. Okay. What yeah. about you, gents? If you were to rank the Men in Blacks? Yeah, I can rank the MIBs. Uh, so, for me, it would be one, three, two, four. Um, international for me is, is by far the worst. Like Men in Black 2, I, I can totally see why um, people would take against it, but I rewatched it after watching International for the first time since the cinema. Um, and I've got to say that after watching International, Men in Black 2 stood up so much better um, after watching that. I think maybe just because it, it isn't as bad as International. It definitely has bad elements like the lingerie model bad guy like Lara Fenn Boyle just literally just completely uh, fetishized all over that movie um but you know it, it's not it's not great in any way but I think it's fine same with Man Black 3 but I don't think either of those I don't think any of them are good films apart from the first one uh, really but yeah first one the best international very much at the bottom for me mm, yeah I uh, I mirror that ranking Liam yeah one three two four um, the thing I'm most bummed out about I guess now thinking about it is that we never got a Men in Black 2 which was Will Smith and Linda Fiorentino as the mm -hmm. as the pair because you know Too she right. does step in at the end of the first but uh that's uh, for an alternate universe's uh, franchise to enjoy, yeah. I think. Yeah, right alongside the future adventures of M and H. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, uh, tell you what, watching uh, Men in Black Two again because I I didn't even remember that she wasn't in the second one um, until you were speaking about it the other day, Matt. And watching mm. it, it's like her disappearance is kind of handed out in one line because it's just that Jay just keeps um, kind of. Uh, every partner he's given, he just ends up neuralizing them because he's like, "Oh, you're not good enough." 
And literally it turns out that he did it to her as well. But it was because she said she wanted to go back and work at the morgue instead. And like he's like thrown out in one line. I'm like, fuck off. Oh, yeah, no, I don't believe that. Because Linda Florentino is aces. And I I would love to have seen her been a proper partner. Like, I think, to be honest, I think bringing Tommy Lee Jones back was the big mistake of that franchise. He's like, he should have been gone at the end of the first one, because that is a really surprisingly emotional ending for the first film, by writing him out. And if they just made the second film, Will Smith and Linda Florentino, I think it could have been something really special. Mm-hmm. I think it, that's a, that would have been good. I think the second time they could have saved it is if they'd gone with the Josh Brolin, uh, Alice Eve sort of idea oh, after the third yeah, one. Because yeah. that, that's interesting, like a 60s version of the MIB. You can do all this retro stuff. I think that's got some, some legs. Yeah, and Bolin was amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. The uh, dossier on the Men in Black franchise is complete and thrown in the bin. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, no hits on the knock list. Better luck next time. But uh, thank you for playing. Now, gentlemen, Matt, Liam, thank you for joining us on this podcast, talking about Men in Black International. Where can the folks hear more from you? So you can find Spotlight, our podcast. If you're if you're Star Trek fans, or even if you're not, and you're just interested in getting into Star Trek, we might be a good podcast for you. Um, if you're not a big Trekkie, then but you're looking to get into the world, uh, obviously none of us were big Trekkies before we started, so it might be a good introduction for you. If you are a big Star Trek fan, we try and cater uh, for you guys as well by viewing it from maybe a fresh perspective that you haven't heard before. And we've also got lots of interviews of people who have been involved in Star Trek, uh, like Robert Salin, the producer of Star Trek II, Roth of Khan, or Shazad Latif, who played Ash Tyler in Star Trek Discovery, or Ronnie Rao Jr., who still plays comms officer Bryce in Star Trek Discovery, and lots of other people um, from the world of Star Trek have joined us as well. So you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and on all good podcast platforms. Yeah, come and find us there. We've got some great stuff coming up as well. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm spread out across a few as well. I've got a couple of other pods out there. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts on Sudden Double Deep, where we look at uh, three films linked by a word in the title every week. Uh, and also starting March 1st, I've got a new show out called Is Paul Dano Okay? where we're going through the entire filmography of one Paul Franklin Dano uh, and seeing just how often he does get punched in the face. So come along for that as well. That's incredible. That's a great idea for a podcast. I'm going to check that one out, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, guys at home, me and Cam are big Trekkies, and I don't throw around recommendations around for things I don't mean, and I have really enjoyed listening to what I've heard of Spotlight so far, so definitely check them out. Thank you, sir. I really, really appreciate that. I've already downloaded the Batman and Robin episode, so I'm down. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We'll turn you around on it. That was definitely a firm favorite for us yeah. to do last year. Perfect for a Christmas <laughs> yes. special as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us, gents. Thanks, guys. Now, before we talk about what we're doing next week, here's a quick message from a podcast that we are big fans of. Take it away, Cam. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. Join me as I tell you haunting and horrific reveries about missing people 
and senseless murders. I also interview survivors and people seeking justice for themselves or a loved one. New episodes come out every Monday morning, and sometimes you'll get bonus episodes on Thursdays. Wherever you're listening to this current podcast right now, you can find Reverie True Crime. There you go. That was Paige from the Reverie True Crime podcast. Paige is a great lady on Twitter. She's always around retweeting everything. Big fan, big supporter of the show. So uh, we wanted to show her some love on this episode. But in the meantime, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we're spreading our wings and we're soaring back to 1981 to take on the Disney (laughs) cult classic Condor Man. I know absolutely nothing about this movie. I am I've seen some pictures and I have a feeling it's going to be very interesting. Should be, should be. I'm looking forward to this one. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Condor Man and join us next week. Uh, of course, don't forget to follow us on social media discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But until next week, listeners. Just remember, we care.